0: Hi, Theory. theory. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Sharunik Bosu. And I'm Kim Adams. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. And this week... I am talking with Elaine Friedgood about commodity fetishism. The idea of the commodity fetish is... Oh, wait. Oh. Can I ask you to introduce yourself first? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who cares? Uh, hi, my name's Elaine Friedgood. I teach English at NYU. That's good, right? That's great. Okay. So what the heck is the commodity fetish? What is it? Yeah, that's a. it's a, it's a big concept because you have... The commodity and the fetish, both of which the commodity is major in Marx. The fetish is actually not a major idea in Marxist theory, but people have made it into one because it's just such an interesting concept historically. So I'm just going to start with the commodity and cool. then go to the fetish. So the, the commodity in Adam Smith and in capitalist political economy is just a commodious thing, and people trade these things, and it's just there's just sort of a total... Uh, natural thing about it. Like, of course, people make things and they, I make a sweater, you make a cake, you know, we figure out how to trade them. So those are commodities, but, but they're based on use value. Like I would say, well, how long did it take you to make that cake? And, you know, how long did it take me to make the sweater? Whatever. We would barter, mm-hmm. but um what happens in capitalism is that commodities, what Marx calls this gigantic collection of commodities, become the wealth of society. And the sort of tragedy, in a way, capital capital, volume one especially, is a tragedy because it's about the way that relationships between humans become relationships between things. So in exchange value, we start to think not about your labor making a cake, we just look at a cake. And say, oh, that's worth $5. And it's as though that worth is inherent. It's in the cake. It's not the congealed labor of Kim, mm-hmm. it's just in the cake itself somehow. And mm-hmm. so, and it's in the cake in relationship to other cakes and blueberries and flour and tables and the whole world of commodities sort of comes alive in Marxist theory. And that's where fetishism enters in anything can be a commodity that that one needs and marx doesn't make any distinction between the needs of the stomach and the needs of fancy as he puts it right so Hmm. donuts or diamonds they're they're all we need them right especially donuts i mean let's face let's be realistic so marx gets he gets quite sarcastic about this because capital is also an angry book he's angry about what he's seen Hmm. you know he's angry about the condition of workers I mean, Engels is the one who does most of the sort of sociological, anthropological writing about workers in Manchester, mm-hmm. but Marx also goes there, and then Marx lives in London. He is himself hugely impoverished, and there's a great article by Peter Stalybrass called Marx's Coat, okay. which is about how he had to pawn his coat, and he could only go to the British Library every other day when he got his coat out of hock, and pawning in the 19th century was a really major sort of way of staying alive. So. In, in the section of Capital, in Volume 1, in, section, in, in the first section, mm-hmm. there's a little, fairly short section called The Fetishism of Commodities and the Secret Thereof. And he says, a commodity appears at first sight, a very trivial thing and easily understood. Its analysis shows that it is in reality a very queer thing. Queer theorists have made a lot of that queer, but I don't know. It is in reality a very queer thing, abounding in metaphysical subtleties and theological niceties. Hmm. So far as it is a value in use, there is nothing mysterious about it, whether we consider it from the point of view that by its properties it is capable of satisfying human wants or from the point that those properties are the product of human labor. It is as clear as noonday that man, it's always man, of course, in, in capital by his industry changes the forms of the materials furnished by nature in such a way as to make them useful to him. The form of wood, for instance, is altered by making a table out of it. Yet for all that, the table continues to be that common everyday thing, wood. And this is, here, here he's taking off, he's really gaining steam. But so soon as it steps forth, as a commodity. So you already see this personification of commodities. They're like doing their own thing without us. It is changed into something transcendent. It not only stands with its feet on the ground, but in relation to all other commodities, it stands on its head and it evolves out of its wooden brain, grotesque ideas, far more wonderful than table turning ever was. So table turning, you know, was like seances and Mm -hmm. trying to speak to the dead. So Marx, Marx attributes to the table the ability to produce grotesque ideas. But, of course, the grotesque ideas, you can't say they're produced by capitalists. They're produced by the relations of capitalism, produces these grotesque ideas. So the idea of a table mm-hmm. having yeah. grotesque ideas takes us to the fetish, right? Yeah. To, call, to call a capitalist commodity fetishist is an insult. It's, a rage, it's racist. It's meant to be a real stab at a system that prides itself on logic. From Marx's perspective, like Marx is insulting capitalism when he says that. I mean, if you look at his his work on South Asian colonization, yeah, he was a pretty standard 19th century racist. But fetishism was this idea that really started in the 15th and 16th century when the Portuguese went to what was, well, it became the Gold Coast officially. It became a British crown colony in like the early 19th century, now it's Ghana. Mm-hmm. And of course there was a ton of gold there. Mm-hmm. Um, and also there was a lot of slave trading there. Mm-hmm. So anyway, the Portuguese went there and they came back and, and disseminated the information that the people of the Gold Coast worship bones and sticks and ornaments as if there's a deity in them. It, it, it's really interesting. I was reading this book last night I highly recommend it. It's called The Returns of Fetishism, a pretty recent book, um, which is an analysis and a new translation of Charles de Bross, who was an 18th century, so a very minor philosopher in Dijon of all places, who wrote a book on fetishism that Marx read. So it's thought that this is where Marx got his information on fetishism. The idea is that the fetish, I mean, the idea as we understand it now, is sort of the ultimate sign of alterity. Like okay. in civilization, we don't we don't worship sticks. You know, then we might worship two sticks like this, but mm-hmm. they they are figural and symbolic rather than literal. Like but the thing is what has become increasingly clear is that fetishism really never existed. The Portuguese were not talking to people. I mean they weren't having they couldn't have had very profound conversations and what happened was, like Orientalism, a discourse of fetishism built up where debrasse, I don't think, went to Africa. I think he relied on all kinds of second, third, fifth hand accounts of the fetish. But it was a very handy marker for the uncivilized. Yeah. Right? So it's this idea that the capitalist worships in this bizarre way a value that is said to be in is thought to be in the thing, but which still even though we don't think about it, is a matter of human social relations. Right. So it's a kind of reification, and reification is a really important word in this context because the process of human relations, of human labor, becomes reified, which means a process becomes a thing, into money value, right? Between objects. So that the objects are just talking among themselves and their money value is being created. I mean they're not I don't really think they're talking. (laughs) Elaine, can I ask you our next question? Yes. So how do I use commodity fetishism? Ah, that's a great question. Even in the OED, I saw an example where it said somebody was shopping all up and down the high street like a commodity fetishist. A commodity fetishist is not somebody who loves things, right? That's a very later idea of Marxism is that Marxism is materialist, right? right? And for Marx, the tragedy it's not that we love things, it's that we don't love them enough. In other words, we don't appreciate the sensuous qualities of things. So you're a commodity fetishist if the things that you use in your everyday life, and we all are commodity fetishists, or else we would die of grief, if you actually thought about who makes your computer, you know, who makes your, you know, these kind of cheap notebooks, you know, this is kind of stuff that comes out of prisons, for example, pretty regularly. Um, you know, if we actually did the research to find out what kind of human labor is involved in the things that we use. So we are, we are commodity fetishists to the extent that we don't think about that most of the time. And if we did, I think that most of us who had half of a heart or even a quarter of a heart or even yeah. a little chunk would just die because it would be so terrible to think yeah. about the conditions. But we're not commodity fetishists because. We love our iPhones. I mean, that's not, that's not fetishism. That's not commodity fetishism. I mean, if your iPhone was your primary sexual object, you would be a Freudian fetishist. And I don't even want to think about that. Um, <laughs> I'd, rather think <laughs> about a, I'd rather think about a shoe <laughs> than a phone. I don't know. It's like, yeah, so... Yeah. So commodity so commodity fetishism is being oblivious to the social relations of production. Maybe I should ask you our third question. Sure. Okay. So our third question is how will commodity fetishism save the world? Oh, it won't. It's already destroyed it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's commodity fetishism. fetishism has destroyed the world because capitalism unbridled is now why you know the world is burning down and flooding and we have pandemics and it all relates to unbridled growth right and this need to just make more and more and more and more stuff and that growth is always good and of course growth is always good for some people i mean people are getting rich during this pandemic or richer the rich are getting richer during this pandemic so it won't save the world it's it has already destroyed the world and i believe There's no coming back. So live each day to the fullest. I was going to say something more. I think that's kind of an amazing ending. Yeah, cut. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Well, we should say goodbye to our listeners. Um, Okay. Bye, listeners. Thank you for listening. Yeah. Bye. Thank you, guys. And thank you for listening to High Theory.